0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The prophet Jeremiah records God's frustration with the sin of his people. The natural inclination in our sinful hearts is not simply an unfortunate tendency, though. To make the wrong choice here and there, it is in fact rebellion against God. It is an unknowably deep corruption of our will. God created earth and all that fills it to be good. The sin that spoils what God made good is not merely an incompetence or weakness, it is wickedness. It is unwillingness to be what God created us to be. God created us unlike any other creature that simply obeys as it is made to obey, but he created us unlike any other creature to agree with him. We talk about a human nature, sinful human nature, but how natural really is it? Isn't it rather a corruption of nature? Well, of course. When we talk theologically, though, it is and becomes a sort of shorthand to, or what has been corrupted, we talk about the nature of man as always sinful. It is so much a part of us that we cannot, by our own fallen power, distinguish it from our nature. Only God can. And so human nature and sinful human nature are really the same thing. Although God can, by his word, pierce through the division of bone and marrow and soul and spirit. Sin is a spiritual perversion that the devil has brought about by tempting our first parents away from believing God's word. God created us to hang on to every word that he speaks so that we might have perfect communion with him. This was the most beautiful feature of what he had made. And so, the most hideous feature of our fallen nature is that we do not listen to what God says. All creation is cursed for our sake. There's death and disease and pain, but God still orders his creation according to his almighty power. The seasons come and go according to his command. There's a natural order of things in which we can still trace the wisdom and kindness of God, our makers. His handiwork does what he tells it to do, but then man doesn't. And your own heart doesn't. Sin is truly, truly twisted. To demonstrate how unnatural sin really is, the Lord God expresses his frustration to Jeremiah in our Old Testament lesson. If man falls down, won't he get up? Isn't that natural? That's what you do when something causes you to fall. If a man walks the wrong way and discovers his error, doesn't he turn around and walk back? Who doesn't do that? When we think of the nature of sin, We cannot think of a mere unavoidable malfunction like with a GPS. We are always thinking of man's will. We're thinking of rebellion because this is how the Bible presents it. Like a war horse determined to plunge into battle. That sin and our natural powers are no match against it. God laments, even the stork in the, he- in the heavens know her time, knows her times, and the turtle doves swallow and crane, keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the judgment of the Lord. Well, how did these birds get their obedience? It's put into them by instinct. Where will we get our obedience? By listening to the judgments of God. God made the animals that way, and God made us to listen his word. We must rely on what God says to us. We have to learn to hang on to God's word despite what comes naturally. Not us, not just for us to do, but for us to want to do. For God, here in our text this morning, our, our gospel lesson, reveals a wrath that dashes away any excuse that we are just human. For God in the flesh Warns with tears of what comes to the unwilling. God speaks to us, and we don't naturally listen. It's frustrating. But God continues to speak. Throughout the generations, God spoke only to see the children of man turn from his voice like Adam. But by grace, he chose Abraham and his descendants to know and believe in Christ as they waited for the promised seed who would redeem the world from sin. He did not choose them because they were holier than anyone else. He chose them out of pure mercy. But they lost sight of this mercy. Again and again, they imagined that God had chosen them because he liked what he saw in them. As though they had been so well programmed to worship in the temple. And to do everything that God commanded Moses in the law, as though they were tweaked just perfectly to do the right thing, and so God was pleased with them. They had no sense of how the will should be engaged, how frustrated. Again and again, they rejected the spiritual food handed to them in the gospel in favor of their own vain thoughts and works. It is not our thoughts and works that make us God's special people. It's not what we do here in church. It is God's word. It is what he gives us. We can't rely on our natural powers. So God gives to us what natural man can't receive. It is supernatural in the truest sense. He sends his Holy Spirit to teach us the truth so that by the Holy Spirit we may call him Lord. He teaches us what costly price the Father spent in order to free us from sin and death the very lifeblood of his Son, whom he loved. He teaches us his judgment by laying all judgment on his Son in our place so that our will might be revived and warmed to love him. He joins us to Christ, who died and rose, to give us a new life, unmarred by sin and unwillingness. He washes us clean in holy baptism and there gives us ears to hear what his word is, holy children of God who trust their heavenly Father. And his word forgives us. He makes us his people not by giving us rules to follow, but by giving us free and willing hearts that delight in what he says. He creates us anew by creating living faith that thirsts for God's word and judgment. He teaches us not to begrudgingly comply with what he commands, but to agree with what he commands. He teaches us to weep over the unwillingness we encounter in our hearts, He teaches us to weep as we did, as he did. For just as God constantly called his children of old to repentance, so he must call us to repentance as well, because we still sin, we still engage in war against God. Our natural or unnatural nature remains a force that we as new men and women and reborn children continually fight because when we fight against urges and pride and wicked habits and whatever else defiles our lives and brings strife between brothers and sisters, we are always at the same time fighting against unbelief that wars against our relationship with God. We fight this fight by hanging on to the word of grace that forgives us and unites us to our gracious God. We weep on account of the unwillingness of our flesh But it is the tears of Jesus that cleanse us, and not our own. Jesus knew what he was dying for. He has seen whatever is in your heart that betrays you. If all your tears are noted by God and kept in his bottle, as David says, on account of the fact that he loves you, how much more are the tears of his own dear son? who willingly bore the blame and punishment you have deserved and for whose sake God loves you. How much more are these tears precious to God and of great comfort to you? How much more are they able to cleanse you? Jesus sanctifies your frustration with yourself. He makes it a holy frustration because he himself has wept in frustration. Frustration with your sin in penitence, and he wept precisely because he is able to make you willing only by having mercy on you he directs us all not to fruitless frustration in our hearts but to what he does with clarity and knowledge as he goes forth to give his life for the sins of all humanity And, of course, this is why he cleansed the temple. This is why he drove out those who distracted from the sacrifices that pointed to him and to his own suffering and death. This wasn't in frustration and anger and confusion. Like, we do things and litter regret how hastily we did it. No, the weeping was frustration with the flesh that we all have. But his cleansing of the temple was clear and deliberate and calculated as he laid out very, very clearly what was needed for sinners to learn the mercy of God. It doesn't come in what we trade and barter. It doesn't come in the works that we do. It doesn't come in how perfect we can make the worship of God. It comes in what he offers to us where our sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. By expressing expressing such emotion, God exhibits not weakness, but desire. He saves us not by decreeing what we must do the way he decrees that geese will flock north and south. He doesn't ingrain in us some dumb instinct that mimics the holy life he's pleased with. Rather, he gives us a holy life to live by giving us faith in what he has spoken. He clothes us in the holy life that he lived in our place as the Son of God, our brother. He teaches us to hang on to his word. He does not reprogram our hearts to mechanically do what we should. Rather, he melts our hearts by exposing our sin and persuades our hearts by forgiving our sins. For Jesus' sake, he does not force faith. He creates faith. Miraculously. By speaking the absolution, which which are the very words of God to you. By feeding all of us with the body and blood that purchased our salvation. And that now lives and reigns in heaven interceding for us. And has given to us to eat and to drink as a pledge. And permanent affirmation that our sins truly are forgiven. And by identifying us as his beloved children with whom he is well pleased. As long as we give glory to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Man has no power on his own to accept this. So don't look for the power in yourself. Man does have the natural power, however, to reject it. And you will often find it. And this is what frustrates God. It's not God's fault when one does not believe, it's not God's fault when you are down and out when you find yourself unable to believe, when you're sad, it's yours. But God's mercy is genuine and sincerely offered to all. Not the least of those, not the least those with whom he is so frustrated that he is brought to tears. And that's why he took on the flesh and blood that is common to all of us. He became true man. He joined his creation. He assumed our human nature without assuming our sin. He made the distinction that we're unable to make between spirit and soul, between righteousness and sin. Deep in the heart of man, he was truly without sin. And yet he has known the frustrating corruption better than any of us because he bore by his Father's command Everything against us. Frustration that God expressed to Jeremiah is the same frustration that God expressed when he wept over Jerusalem. And it's the same frustration that he expressed before the flood when he regretted making man. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes because you did not know the time of your visitation. When God's people ignore God's judgment, they ignore what makes for peace with God. They cease to be his people. When we close our eyes to what frustrates God, we close our eyes to Jesus who has come to make peace. Look at his frustration. He weeps for Jerusalem and the temple, which he chose as his dwelling place, He weeps because it will be destroyed by his own wrath. And he doesn't want to do it. Jesus' description is stirring. The whole city will be surrounded. You and your children. The temple will be demolished, not one stone upon another. This is his frustration with unbelief. Don't you know what your sin has earned? Don't you know what I have come to save you from? Don't you know? They didn't know what made for peace because they didn't believe that they were at war. They weren't frustrated with their sin. They weren't frustrated with their unwillingness in their heart. It didn't bother them. And so just as they rejected God's word from Jeremiah, they persecuted the word of God made flesh and crucified him. And Jesus wept. You can imagine how frustrated he is. But he's not simply crying for the city, cities come and go. He cries because the judgment dimly represents the destruction that comes upon the whole world. Judgment that will be poured out on him alone as he makes peace between God and man on the cross. Judgment that will be reserved for those who reject his sacrifice. Jesus wasn't just crying because of what he would endure. He was crying because the fruit of what he endured would be rejected. He would cry in the Garden of Gethsemane. But today we hear him crying because even though he's dead set on bearing all the world's sin, he sees his own people reject what makes for peace the peace that the temple was designed to teach them about. He's frustrated. He's frustrated. To see Christians embrace their sin and make excuses for it instead of humbly crying for mercy. He's frustrated to see young confermans stop going to church because they think they've graduated from hearing the word that saves them. He's frustrated with fathers who teach their families to skip church because they have something else more important. He's frustrated with mothers who show disrespect to their fathers, with couples who complain in front of their children, with those who listen to gossip within the body of Christ, who compete rather than love. He's frustrated with young men who think that they have the rest of their life to learn what's important, and with old women who think they've already learned everything they need to. He's frustrated with sinners whose sin does not frustrate them who are content to live at odds with their spouses at home and with their brothers and sisters at church. He's frustrated with what comes naturally to us every single day. Dear Christians, our sin must frustrate us. It must bother us. We need to see the weakness of our sinful nature. We need to see the strength of our flesh that desires to act contrary to God's word. We are sinners. This means... That we want and desire wicked things. God destroyed the temple. God destroyed the city that housed it. God does not want to destroy us as He lives. He desires that the wicked turn from their way and live. That is what He wants. The temple was destroyed as a warning. It was final for those who perished, though all Christians escaped in 70 AD, and all the Jews who remained there, who killed Jesus and refused for 40 years to repent, died in unspeakable torture, until the Gentiles, the Romans, who were world-renowned for torturing mercilessly, took pity before God did, and ended their affliction by sending them into slavery instead, just to keep them from eating themselves literally. But God's mercy ends where the mercy which we find in Christ is rejected. Good God, deliver us from ceasing to be bothered and frustrated with our sin. And so we do what Jesus does when we are frustrated and tears. We do what is very deliberate. We cast from our hearts all money changers, all inordinate desires and lusts, we daily repent of our sins and flee to where Christ teaches us to go, where his word is taught, where forgiveness is given, where his cry for us is mercy, 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 all day long, so that we never forget this crying until we are in heaven where sin can disturb and frustrate us No longer. Sin is frustrating, but we are not saved by our tears. We are saved by Jesus. He has wept for us, and what is more, He has bled for us. And His pity for us never ceases. He desires our repentance, He desires our our salvation, He desires to make our hearts willing, and He does. He does by pure mercy and grace. When he forgives us our sins, he saves us from all God's anger. He saves us from eternal destruction. And he saves us from the dread of anything that might come upon us, either here or hereafter, even unto eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.